0: This podcast brought to you by TechSmith. More A3 is software that helps you see things from your customer's point of view, so you can make things that are truly fast, powerful, and easy to use. By BlackBot, making the world a better place by providing technology solutions and support to nonprofit organizations around the world. By OptimalSort, with an elegant user interface, powerful analysis, and outstanding support, OptimalSort can help you run card sorts better than you ever thought possible. By PowerMapper, mapping your site has never been easier. PowerMapper extracts links from each page of your site until it's mapped your entire site, providing you with a complete inventory. By Axure, enabling information architects and user experience professionals to design efficiently, experience their designs, and clearly communicate them, ensuring more useful and usable applications. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For other events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. We live in a world where the little things really do matter. Each encounter, no matter how brief, is a micro-interaction that makes a deposit or withdrawal from a rational and emotional subconscious. The sum of these interactions and encounters adds up to how we feel about a particular product, brand, or service. Little things. Feelings. They influence our everyday behaviors more than we realize. Critical Masses' David Armano talks about what organizations are doing this and how we'll all need to rethink how brands are built and sustained in an ever changing 2.0 world. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers.
1: How many uh, folks in the audience here consider themselves designers? Okay, how about um, marketers? Okay. Everyone here think about business? Good. Okay. Um, my, uh, my goal, my, part of my goal of the presentation uh, is to blur the lines between the three. So um, hopefully that will lead for some uh, good conversation later in the day. Um, let's talk about a few things that are changing in the space, because there, there's a lot of change. We're seeing a lot of change both within our industry um, and also outside of our industry that we have not seen in a long time. I think. Um, Probably, uh, you know, I compare this to what we, what we saw in the early days of the web, or at least maybe when the web started really getting traction. But let's talk about some things that don't change for a second. Um, how many people here have heard of Randy Posh? Okay. Um, pretty well-known story. Uh, he actually recently passed away from pancreatic cancer. His dad, a husband, a scientist, an author, he gave a lecture, um, actually part of the last lecture series at Carnegie Mellon, um, and it was uh, one of the... It, was put on YouTube and spread millions of times. Um, also wrote a book called The Last Lecture, which is a great book. And um, you know, I wanna share one story that's in that book that actually helped me shape this presentation and kind of bring it down to a more basic human level. And Randy talks about, uh, he's a big fan of Disney, <clears throat> and um, he talks about one specific experience, one specific tiny interaction that he had on one of his first trips to Disney. And it goes like this. Um, so. He and his sister, he's 12 years old, they were so excited about their trip to Disney, and and they just wanted to somehow thank their parents. And so they went into a store, and they bought a salt and pepper shaker. And on their way out from the store, they're skipping, and they're doing what kids do, and um, the salt and pepper shaker drops and breaks. And uh, Randy's distraught, uh, he's upset, And and a stranger says, you know, why don't you just take it back to the store? And Randy's like, well... My fault, you know, and I. I, What what are they going to do? Stranger says, "Well, you never know." So he goes back to the store and uh, brings it to uh, the counter, and uh, the uh, salesperson says, um, takes a look at it, and says, "I'm sorry, sir. Clearly, we didn't wrap this correctly. Please accept. We please accept uh, another one." And so he was so taken back by this one interaction that he had at that Disney store that what he did as a scientist. He calculated all the money that he, had, he and his family had spent on trips to Disney, um, and also buying, you know, all the different goods that they offer, and it, it added up to hundred thousand dollars. So in his mind, it all goes back to this one experience that he had. That's what's what stood out the most. And when someone is, you know, writing their book and and they're, you know, they're living out their last days, you know, for that story to stand out is really compelling to me. So. Um, In his later years, uh, Randy found himself in a a spot where uh, he could actually consult with companies like Disney, actually spend some time with Disney. And this was one of the questions that he would ask some of the executives. You know, if this were happening today, uh, would your salespeople be kind enough to replace it? And this is the answer that um, he gets. Not so much a verbal no, but reading between the lines and looking at their body language, he feels he kind of came to the conclusion that that's probably not the case. So... um, Let's talk about some things that are changing. You know, that's that's sort of basic human, um, I guess, um, maybe not so much human behavior, but um, some things that are changing. Uh, if you search for the phrase, I love Citibank, if you put that in Google, you'll actually get a blog post that I wrote as the number one result. And I wrote this blog post because I really I enjoy banking at Citibank, and and have you know been loyal to them for many years. It started for me. It started, you know, the love affair started with their ATMs, and I just always loved their banking service and then their online banking service. So I wrote this post about it, and I get good traffic to my blog, and so it, it's the number one result. And so um, what's changed here is that you've got a lot of people like me who are producing content out there, um, which can end up really high in search Google results, and it becomes like in a way sort of the best kind of marketing you can have because it's an, it's a um, uh, kind of a, you know, unsolicited um, endorsement. That's not something that existed, um, you know, five-plus years ago. Uh, there weren't a lot of people like me out there producing their own content. So it's this idea that, you know, people don't change, but our behavior does. And if I were to sum up in one way, what is the big shift that's going on? Well, we're evolving from sort of these passive consumers that marketers have always marketed us to us in a certain way, to active, active participants. And what that means is that you know, if you think about what a consumer used to be, we sit on the couch, you know, may, maybe we watch the commercials, maybe we didn't, um, and we weren't really, really actively engaged in activities. And that's changed. Uh, people are, are more actively engaged on the web, and we have different mindsets. So for example, if we want to do our online banking, we're in kind of a user mindset. We want to get from point A to B. Uh, we may be actually part of a larger community, and people tend to act a bit differently in groups. We may actually be producing content, so we're actually acting, we're behaving like a producer. And so um, putting our marketing hats on, this makes it difficult to slice and dice people through demographics or even through personas because our behavior is becoming so erratic and so fragmented and specialized. And that's a big shift. Um, We have to really focus on on, on uh, on the behaviors much more so. Personas actually do that, which is a big difference. Uh, for marketing segments, but we have to even go deeper in that area. We're seeing big changes in technology. Uh, this is what the web used to look like, you know, sort of a front-end, a back-end, and you need to design an interface and use an out-of-the-box solution. And now, this is sort of what Web 2.0 looks like, right? It's this endless selection of services, you know, every day there seems to be a new one and, and everyone has access to them. Many of them are open source. Uh, and so, um, we see things like this increasingly, where you go to a web page and there are sort of pieces on that web page that maybe were not created from scratch, but they're existing services. Google Maps is, is, is probably one of the well, most well known examples of that. And they just get plugged into what that is. And that changes how we work, because we're not, we're not creating everything from scratch. That's a big change. One example, and um, this is something that we had actually done at Critical Mass, just to illustrate that point, is um, we just put together r- really quickly, like in a couple of days, we put together this this one page, and we had live streaming going on with a live chat. We didn't build any of these things. We were using Twitter to actually update links. Uh, we were using Flickr for, to manage our photos and put it together very quickly, and we used this for an event. And what was interesting about this, you know, for me it was a, it was a fascinating experiment because I wanted to prove that, A, we could work this way and work this quickly, but I also wanted to prove, uh, take, take a look at this, um, this woman and, and watch her expression. It gets really interesting. Watch what she does right here. She's watching the chat, and someone's talking to her in real time. And you see, she just, this grin just appears on her face, and she's leaning forward slowly. And so aside from the, the, the technology part of this, which is that we were able to quickly put this up, the other point, which I was very happy to prove, is that you, know, you don't have to spend all this time creating sort of a, uh, you know, a special effects, motion-rich experience to have an engaging experience. Um, this woman was completely engaged, you can't fake that kind of a smile. Uh, she was watching what was going on. It was sort of this direct human connection, and we, re- and we put this thing together in a couple of days, and it was really uh, an interesting experience. Actually, this is something that you see uh, 37 Signals. Jason Freed will be talking later. Um, they do this on a regular basis, and because, because they have such a strong following, they'll have up to 1,000 people tune in at a time to watch them and interact with them. So the end result is that um, you know, I talk about this notion of infinite touch points, and what it really means is that uh, prior to, uh, you know, sort of in the, in the, or before digital, before the web, there were finite ways to interact with a, a brand or organization. There was a call center. Um, you could actually go up to the store. Uh, there, you know, basically the, there were the marketing channels. There were limited ways that you can interact with a brand. Um, with the advent of the web, um, these avenues were expanded into a digital realm, right, through our browser and other ways. And then what happened was companies had to figure out how to get them to connect. We had to actually figure out, okay, well, how can we align our call center with our our orders so we know that supply and demand are working, Um, and how can we, uh, you know, uh, coordinate our marketing efforts with, you know, maybe our direct marketing efforts. And um, the last one, which is something that that I've been kind of thinking about, is that um, this third phase is this idea of of the touch points are almost reaching a point where they seem infinite, and what that means is that not only are there all the web channels and all all the different ways that that manifests, but with things like... Um, comments, or anytime a brand is online and let's say you vote it, you know, you're on DIG and you vote it up and down, that's, that's a tiny little micro-interaction. And those interactions are infinite. Those can go on forever. Um, so that's just one way that, 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 that I kind of look at the way things are, are, are um, you know, the direction that things are heading into, and it seems like, like they can really go on forever and that there will only, only be more and more of that. But in essence, it, it, you are interacting with a company or brand. The way that we influence is changing and um, probably one of, the, one of the best ways to look at that is traditionally uh, celebrities and public figures have enjoyed influence and the higher profile that you had, uh, the more influence. And with the web, that still exists. So for example in that other model where um, you know, someone at the top of the pyramid had the most influence, you could be someone with a large audience in this model, which is more organic and it's more about radiating ripples out, um, could have a lot of influence, but there's lots of people Everyday people who maybe have much smaller followings, that would be like maybe a number four, who also influence. And oftentimes that influence can even work both ways. So for example, you know, I have a, a decent-sized audience, but I will look at what's going on through the day through a, a channel like Twitter. I can see what people are talking about, and some, sometimes that will help set my agenda for the day. So um, in reality, anyone can influence on the web. Anybody can start a blog, uh, start a profile on any one of these uh, services begin talking, and even if your network is only 20 or 30 people, you do influence that group, and that influence can actually expand out. So the way that we think about influence is changing as well. Um, I talk about this concept called streams. It's not something I came up with, um, but uh, this is a a way that I've uh, helped try to visualize it. And it's idea that, again, if you think about it from a human behavior perspective, what we're doing is we're publishing our lives, we're putting ourselves out there whether it's perspectives or we're just sharing our photos. um, And we're doing it lots of different ways. It could be through mobile. It could be through um, through our computers. And many of us are reaching this point where we have multiple live streams that we have to support. And in some cases, they intersect. So, for example, if you write a blog and you pull in your Flickr photos, that's the intersection of two live streams. And so, again, from a kind of basic human need perspective, we're reaching this point where we're trying to make sense of all these multiple live streams and we're trying to organize them. So we're seeing services out there like FenFeed which allow us to do that, allow us to pull all of our live streams in, in one area. It may not be the service that ends up being the one, but again, it goes back to this idea of if you look at the bottom of that pool, um, you know these, these streams have to end up somewhere. And you know, uh, as uh, you're all information, or many of you are information architects, and like to organize things. I mean, that's a basic human need. You know, we like to have some sense of organization in our lives to make sense out of it. Um, you know, another basic human truth, we, we trust people like us. This is a study Forrester did, and it, and it, and it uh, validates that. The number one uh, influencer is of opinion of a friend or acquaintance who has used a product or service. But we have to think about who we view as our friends. In some cases, we have extended um, spheres of, of influence and extended networks of friends. And so, someone who um, you know, we might not see on a day to day basis, we may feel like that person is our friend. And brands themselves, you know, a brand is really not what you say it is, it's what the people who are in fellowship with that brand says it is. That's what really matters. And so there's this one interesting um, actually when I was out in PG um talking to them, I, I actually gave this talk. And what I did was I went to a service called brand tags, and it's sort of one of these open source types of efforts where just you know, one individual started it and you can um you know you could Say okay, well, this is my brand, and then people can actually tag it. The first thing that pops into their mind enters a tag cloud, and then obviously, like every other tag cloud, uh, the, the larger the size of the word, the more times it's been entered. So, this is what came up for P and G, um, which they were sort of surprised about. Um, and you know, it goes back to the point of well, you know, if you really want to analyze this, you have to think about who that audience is. You know, are they brand managers? Do they have an agenda? Do they not? So. There's lots of different ways, but at the end of the day, it still goes back to that statement of, they still feel that way, and that now exists on the web. Right? You can go to that service and you can't hide this. And p done a great job of, um, you know, uh, they've had great success in terms of um, systematizing innovation and telling that story to the press, but yet there's this other side that is still on the web which makes it valid. Uh, our expectations as customers, as users, as consumers is that you know, we just, we're spoiled. We want more from brands. And so, if you think about advertising, um, advertising's not going away and it's still effective. You know, the example that I like to use is, at at, at its root, a billboard on a highway is still effective in raising awareness. You will subliminally pick up what that is and if you see the product, you might go, you know, I've seen that somewhere but I don't know where. But it's the promises that advertising makes that's becoming less potent. And, um, you know, what's great for us, because we work in the experience business, is that it's the actions that are becoming increasingly more important, and the web obviously has a big um, part in this. So um, books that were written a long time ago, like The Experience Economy, uh, in many ways have kind of forecast this pretty effectively. So it's this idea of interactions, you know, actions that engage, enable, and empower. Now one thing that's different that I, that I think has come to pass that's different from what was outlined in The Experience Economy is it's not always this orchestrated theatrical experience like the Starbucks experience. Oftentimes, it's experiences like Craigslist. Really bare bones, blue links, white page. You know, we'd all look at it and say there's IA issues, there's visual design issues, yet it's this incredibly strong brand. And the, you know, the best way that I can talk about something like Craigslist, I mean, if you look at their stats, they're the leading classified service in any medium. They're killing newspapers from a business model perspective. One story that I like to use to, that, you know, to, 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 um, kind of, um, you know, that, that works this idea of micro-interactions. My wife and I use Craigslist one day, we use it quite often. And um, we decided we wanted to sell this big playset for my kids. So I, I spent the morning dismantling it. My wife took pictures. She uploaded them. By the afternoon, we had about 20 people that wanted to buy the thing. Late, you know, two hours after that, we had already had someone come on their way, picked it up, um, and it was off of our hands, and we had $200 in our pocket. And we felt really great after that. So it had nothing to do with how well-designed the experience was or how nicely it looked. It had everything to do with how we felt after that interaction, after that transaction. So Craigslist is a really interesting model. Could it be better? Probably, but it still works at that core fundamental emotional level. So um, I kind of looked at it from this perspective. uh, The things, you know, we're we're sort of in this application economy, right, where um, advertising still has its place, but you have to deliver upon that, and, and there are three ways to do that. You have to be useful, serve a purpose. You have to offer some kind of utility. Uh, a service like Craigslist obviously does that. Sort of things like Flickr. And this idea of ubiquity, that you have to be effective across multiple touch points, including the social ones. Uh, and a good example of that would be, uh, for example, I came across a site called Housing, housing Maps that uh, mashes up uh, the listings on Craigslist, the house listings on Craigslist with um, Google Maps. So they can, be, they can exist anywhere. Uh, Another big change is, you know, back in 1999, this is what a website looked like. And this was a damn good website back then. And we looked at this stuff and we're like, wow, that really feels like the Nike brand and it's so nice and it's so colorful. Um, And that's just not enough anymore. And uh, same example, this is something that you probably heard about. It's Nike Plus. And so um, it's basically, it's a system. And the way that it works is they partnered with Apple and there's a little sensor that goes in your shoe and it tracks... um, The amount of steps that you have, Uh, you can program it to um, track your progress. You can sync up songs to it so that you have, you know, a song list that goes with it. And then this is a sensor. And then what you do is when you come home, you download that progress, and um, it'll visualize it. And now you can connect with a community of other rubber runners. I almost said (laughs) runners. Whitney, you can tweet that one. Um, Other runners across the globe. So. Again, you can look at something like this and, uh, um, you know, I've had some discussions with peers and we kind of picked it apart. Um, there's always going to be user experience issues, but this fundamentally is, is the right model. And the reason why I think it's the right model is because it's, it supports this idea of every time you use it, if you're running three times a week, that's three times a week that you're engaging uh, at a deep level with both Nike and Apple. And it's those engagements that help build those brands. And also too, the other interesting thing about this model is it really blurs the line between marketing, product design, user interface. They're all kind of blended in there. Uh, Domino's did something pretty interesting about a year ago where they actually came up with kind of a similar way of thinking. Uh, They came up with this pizza configurator where you could actually design and build your pizza online. Uh, And then you could take it one step further. It was really fun to actually use. Like the way the interface worked it was a great example of making a pizza buying experience kind of fun. And I even had my, uh, I had my, my uh, five-year-old at the time playing around with it. I mean, he, he could use it, and so I uh, thought, well, that's kind of fun. Um, but it got really interesting where you could name your concoction. So you could call this thing like the Vinnie Barbarino, whatever you wanted to call it, uh, and then um, enter it in a, in a contest, and it would get voted up or down based on how creative you were. Uh, so they tied in this idea of the experience and promotions, which I thought was pretty interesting. But it did actually work as well. So if you did want to go ahead and order it, you could order your pizza Domino's promises they'll get it to you within 30 minutes. So there was this pizza tracker where you could actually see where it went in the oven, it was out of the oven, it was in the car, it was, it was on, its, on its way to your house. Also a great time killer when you have your five-year-old who's waiting for the pizza. And it's like, Max, just go see where it is. Right? So it, like, it, you know, it kind of helps in that, in that process. And then it comes, comes to your door. So it's this idea of, of, of brand utility, a brand actually offering functionality and an experience that, that you know, maybe makes buying your pizza a little bit more interesting. Uh, this is actually something that Critical Mass had done for Vegas. And similar kind of a thinking, what we wanted to do was, in, in order to get people to come back, we wanted to create an environment where specifically felt very specifically like, like Vegas. You could upload photos and talk to other uh, friends. Um, but, uh, and so you'd have, you could have a profile page like this and, and uh, um, kind of bookmark the places that you'd like to stay so all of your friends could see that. But the one interesting piece of functionality behind this was that we created this social calendar. And it was based off the insight, we found out that people who travel to Vegas do so in, in a bit of an entourage. They'll oftentimes be like college buddies who live in different parts of the world. One person takes on the role of an instigator, and then they have to coordinate the trip, and it's usually done through emails. So we thought, well, it'd be kind of cool if we could take the email part out of the equation and create this calendar where they could kind of, you know, put on there you know, some of the things that they want to do, and then vote up or down on those things and that was the idea behind the social calendar. Um, and it, you know, it's, uh, it's an interesting experiment because we're, we're finding out that it's getting used to about 8,000 members on the community. We haven't promoted it a bit, so it's a modest number, but uh, better than we anticipated. Um, and again, it's just one of these things where who knows if this, is, this will be the final piece, but you know, we feel like it's heading in the right direction. Um, the idea of engagement is, um, you know, we're seeing it pop up in different formats. So for example, if you go to Borders, They have a really cool feature called this magic shelf where it actually simulates the sort of browsing experience. You can grab the shelf and move it and sort of browse things and then click on it and get more information about it. But we even have to think about engagement differently. Um, The Fiskars brand, which is a a, a crafting brand, um, uh, they came up with an initiative uh, called the Fiskateers, which are brand ambassadors. And essentially what it is, is it's like a a four or five person blog and each one of these bloggers are experts in a certain area of crafting. And so um, when they write about a subject matter, it really has little to do with, with um, promoting Fiskers, It has everything to do with what that craft is and the passion behind it. And so it's typical for a blog to get like maybe 20, 30 comments on a subject matter. Each time someone comments, each time someone spends three, four, five, 10 minutes on taking their time out of their day to actually leave a comment, that's engagement. And, and we're trying to figure out what engagement is as a, as a metric. And so um, it could be things like spending a couple minutes on that magic shelf. It could be something as simple as leaving, uh, you know, spending 5 or 10 minutes and leaving a comment. And that's very basic, right? Because if you think about it from an interaction design perspective, it's very low level design. It's, it's, it's field you know, uh, formats. Um, so it's a, this idea of your brand is the sum of its interactions, that's sort of the root behind this. Um, I mean, this is going to be the one slide that I read off of this verbatim. I promise I will not do any other ones. But it's sort of the thought behind this whole presentation. We live in a world where the little things really do matter. Each encounter, no matter how brief, is a micro-interaction which makes a deposit or withdrawal from our rational and emotional subconscious. The sum of these interactions and encounters adds up to how we feel about a particular product, brand, or service. Little things, feelings. They influence our everyday behaviors more than we realize. And if you were to read between the lines on this, what this is really talking about is a relationship. And it's talking about a relationship between people and also between people and brands and companies or potentially even products. Because it's those interactions that build up over time. So yet another one of my visualizations where um, what I'm putting forth is this idea of it starts with positive interactions. And if that is consistent over time, that builds credibility. Credibility leads to authenticity, which leads to trust, which ultimately leads to loyalty. And that's a way that brands are being built. And then the, the flip side is true, where if you start with negative interactions, and if you have enough of those, the brand is less authentic, you don't trust the brand as much, and you can end up being becoming disloyal. Uh, you know, Microsoft had a rough go with Vista. That almost fits this model perfectly. And that's why, as a business, they're doing great. Um, uh, as a brand, it's, it's debatable. So microinteractions are becoming these building blocks, and a really common-sense example um, is Google. It's a it's a brand that's built themselves mostly on interactions and not so much on traditional marketing or advertising, and these interactions over time lead to feelings, right? So they so each time we 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 used Google to search for something and we found something. If there were more positive interactions and negative interactions, that helped build a brand. And Google talks about being Googly, which is basically their brand of user centered design. And um, but if you think about it, what they did first, you know, if you kind of look at, look at it from a historical perspective, Google does a lot of things that that don't end up um, catching uh, steam in the marketplace. But they did nail search initially, and that's, that is the number one thing that helped build their brand over time. And so um, this is a framework that, um, it's actually been out there, this idea of uh, providing something that's useful, usable, and desirable had been out there. But what I added to this, you know, if we think about this as sort of building a structure, is this idea of sustainable and social. Um, but the main idea here, and if you look at Google, what they did was they really nailed the basics right. They provided a search experience that was useful, usable, and desirable, and it was built on this foundation of what their brand was, which was kind of organically evolving, um, you know, met user needs. They actually are one of the few companies that built an effective business model around it that's sustainable. Um, and now what Google can do is they could venture in the areas of uh, you know, really building, I mean, if you look at Google um, Docs, you know, something that could be sustained over time, um, or making some of their products more social. And that's where they can kind of play and figure that out. But if they started from the right end of the spectrum, um, it would be it would be probably more difficult for them, and that could negatively impact their brand. Uh, a lot of change in the space. Tower Records is a great example of um, you know business model that didn't, that wasn't sustainable, that didn't last. And one thing that, that I think is interesting about it, and as this photo shows, you know, Tower started a website. There was a big tower.com sign on the right side of this photo, but it wasn't enough because they didn't see that the that the their fundamental customer behavior is changing and that people wanted a different way of experiencing music and being able to download it. Um, Netflix on the other hand figured out that people were sick of paying late fees and actually wanted to get their videos brought to them versus going out to a store. And so that became a business model that actually is, is doing well and thriving. Other changes is this idea of we're moving as you know you saw with Nike Plus moving to things that are more like applications on the web, as opposed to static websites. And you know, this is something that you could probably do on your own. Um, whether you're using Firefox or or Chrome or even Safari, um, I, I don't know how your personal behavior is, but I've noticed that I have multiple tabs open. And so, for example, here I've got um, Typepad for blogging, Facebook, um, and I'm using the Chat on that more frequently. LinkedIn, SlideShare for when I upload presentations, and then uh, my Google Star page. And so those become like that becomes my suite of software in a way, more so than just Microsoft Word or PowerPoint. So these you know, these platforms that are that are emerging are becoming more application like. And that's all built on on microinteractions. Each time you use Facebook, each time they do something or come out with a new feature that you use on a daily basis, if it works, it draws you in closer to that organization as a brand and how you feel about them. Uh, Distribution is is becoming a big issue that we're we're seeing within this space. And that's the idea of not always going to a website, but having the content brought to you. So another example is something that that we've done. But more importantly, it's something that we think about with all of our initiatives. For Vegas, um, we had a music calendar. So we thought, okay, well, instead of just driving someone to the site, we have to bring it to them. And that could be on their Google star page. bring to them the times and the dates. So for everything we do that we're trying to figure out, are there ways that we can actually meet the customer where they're at and the platforms that they're comfortable in using? And obviously there's also the, this physical idea of, of, you know, being where the customer's at literally, right? It's mobile. Um, and that could be through your iPhone, mobile phone, uh, devices um, like uh, Kindle. Um, that could be anything, but it's this idea of, designing an experience where you can support those micro-interactions, right, where you can have that on the go, um, so using Twitter on your mobile phone or, or, um, or you know, accessing a Google Doc um, via mobile, all those things really matter. The social experience itself, it's made of these micro-interactions. It's built off of them. right? This is, when I think of sort of the network, this is what I see. It's clusters of, of people who are exchanging information, data, uh, stories about their dogs or kids or families, whatever it is, and it's all getting passed around. And it could be through blogs or it could be on networks or it could be through communities. But each time you have an interaction, you know, people are like brands, right? We're making up our minds about people each time we interact with them, even if we've never met them before. But for brands specifically, um, I think it's this idea of what brands have done you know, if you look at the traditional marketing space, not so much like the Nike Plus model, which is not traditional at all, um, brands have, have mastered the art of communication, or many brands have, and they understand the marketing and advertising machine. What they haven't figured out as much yet is this idea of facilitating, and this is what I mean when I talk about that. So what brands have figured out is how to use broadcast mediums like television or print to take a message and you know, come up with a big idea that's going to um, be translated into a message, you know, maybe in slightly different ways, but it's essentially that big idea, and then you broadcast it out, you push it out, and this is what it looks like. It's the brand sort of front and center, pushing out those messages, maybe to different audiences and different segments. And that's really not going away, as I mentioned before. That still works to some degree, will not go away. But some of the things that we're seeing, uh, or, or the, big change, the big shift that I see is this idea of a brand where that can actually act as a facilitator. And if you think about that, the best analogy that I could use is a physical facilitator. If you've ever been in a group situation with a really good facilitator, what they do is they kind of step off to the side. They're not the center of attention. And they ensure that the communication and the dialogue in the room is positive, that's conductive. If someone's talking too much, they'll figure out a way to get other people to start talking and vice versa. And so brands have this opportunity to actually become more transparent and either create environments or participate in environments where you know, some of those conversations can get going. And it's not always about the brand. It, could be, it's, it should be about what the passion point is. So, for example, if you're a sporting goods company, that may be not about your products as much as it is about the teams and the sport and what's going on in that area. And you know, so one example of, of a brand that I think that's done this in a couple different ways is Dell. And so they actually created this environment called IdeaStorm where anyone could access it. And they, if they had an idea, if they, if they thought Dell could be doing something better or they wanted to critique something or you know, just thought they had a good idea, they could enter it in the community and it could get voted up and down based on it. And they got a lot of engagement on that. Just on this one example, you know, the screen grab was taken, they had um, almost 8,000 comments. And so they had a lot of participation. Again, going back to the idea of of, of customers actually kind of making that move. And you know, once you're commenting or even initiating your own idea, you've kind of moved beyond that, you know, even a basic user mode and certainly a passive mode into an active participant. So by Dell creating this space, in a way they're acting as a, they're acting as a facilitator. And they're making it about issues, not just about Dell. Similar thing for the blog where they had lots of conversations going on around that. It was difficult for them. They had a lot of, a lot of uh, spirited, I guess, sort of conversations happening. But even here, 485 comments on this one post. And they stuck with it. There was a lot of, um, you know, there was, it was a challenge for them because there were, you know, their brand was going through a lot of change and there were a lot of frustrations voiced on it, but they stuck with it and, and it's, it's benefited them because now they do have a bit more of an open dialogue with their customers. And another big change is, you know, these are, these are three people that I equate with Dell. It's not just Michael Dell. These are people who I interact with through, through different social channels. And um, it's Lionel, Laura, and Richard. You know, and I see them as Dell. They each have, you know, they each manage their own sort of micro brands, but they each represent Dell as well. But I know that if I have a question, they'll help me out, or they'll point me in the right direction. And so, um, more employees that we see engaging in social networks—they're representing themselves, but they're also re- representing their companies. And that's a big change as well. We didn't see that, you know, five or ten years ago, at the level that we're seeing now. Uh, this idea of micro interactions becomes really important. when We stumble, and a great exercise is to think about. If you think about that network uh visual that I showed, how many people have had one of these in the past? One of these old beige Macs. This was a Quadra. I th- I actually had this one. This is a Quadra 840 AV. And I th- I like to think about what if Apple pulled this shit now? They would get creamed. I mean, it would take. We've already seen that, right? With um, you know, with with some of the uh, when the iPhone they had to take down the uh, the value $100. They just, you know, in this field, we spend a lot of time praising Apple because they get a lot of things right, but if they ever made a misstep like this, it would be all over the place, and it would be fueled by a lot of those, you know, basically fueled by the social network because that amplifies communication and conversation. Um, Starbucks is an example of a brand, you know, again, based on that experience economy, that did a lot of things right, and somehow their brand has become diluted because they're trying to do everything. And now you can go through Starbucks drive through you can get it at supermarkets, so... They've kind of lost their way a little bit, and the stock price has reflected it. And it's interesting, it's interesting to see um, some of the things that they're doing. So they are trying to go back to their roots. They're coming up with new brews. They've been retraining their staff. Um, ultimately, they're trying to provide a better experience. But the really interesting thing is that they're not doing it on their own. They're, act, they're engaging customers along the way. So they did something similar to what Dell did, was to create an environment Uh, where people could talk about the Starbucks brand and put out their ideas and their opinions. Um, And what they found out was they got tons of engagement on this. Um, At this point, this has almost 800 comments. Uh, And um, what they found out was that people still really care about the Starbucks brand, and they actually want to help. Whatever it is that they saw in Starbucks and that they're unhappy with now, they want to help fix and so, from an innovation perspective, it doesn't mean that Starbucks should listen to every idea and do what they're being told, but now they have a wealth of information that they can look through and that can help spark a new idea. But again, it go, goes back to this idea of this is what facilitation is. Starbucks is actually, you know, they're helping their brand by opening up a bit as opposed to trying to fix it on their own completely. Social media itself is, is evolving and, and one of the more interesting case studies is Twitter. And you know I like to call Twitter this idea of uh, it's sort of this multi touch point ecosystem, and um, the reason why it I, I call it that is because you can interact with Twitter in pretty much any way that you want to through mobile through a desktop application um, it's open source so it, it'll end up in uh, um, virtual worlds although and I don't know anyone who's on a virtual world anymore um, and it's really this kind of organic system that they that they've developed that just evolves over time It was never actually designed for what it Ended up being, and it was actually, in a way, it was an accident. Um, the main product that uh, that, that um, the company produced was called Odeo, and Twitter was a side experiment. And people started using it, and they started using it beyond what it was meant for. But it sort of just grew in that level. So, as interaction designers, that's kind of an interesting movement because it's this idea of um, we can put something out there, and it can take on a life of its own. And there are issues that could come with that, like Twitter's had, uh, as we all know, has had issues scaling. But um, applications like Twitter do kind of mark a bit of a shift, right, because when we're in the design planning process, um, you know, the idea of planning itself is that you actually try to plan for different scenarios and you design to those scenarios. And if you look at Twitter, you couldn't predict, have predicted the scenarios that have come out of it. So another big shift. But take a step back from the technology of Twitter. Um, the thing that I find really interesting about this movement, and here's a few examples. Southwest, H&R Block, Comcast... Zappos. These are all brands, and there's more brands that are doing this. These are all brands that what, they, what they're doing on Twitter is really fascinating. Um, they're not advertising. They're not marketing. They're actually providing customer service. And I've had uh, specific uh, interactions with several of these early on. Um, most recently, Comcast, uh, where I came home. Service was out. I put the usual call in. I got the automated system that said, yes, there's an outage in your area. Call back in four hours. So I'm like, okay, great. You know, no cable, no internet, no nothing. And so I call back, I got someone on the line, they weren't very helpful, still didn't know what was going on, fired up Twitter. Within 10 minutes, person got back to me and they were really knowledgeable. They were like, okay, it's not an outage. Um, It's either going to be your splitter or your amplifier. Go back in the back of your house. So I'm getting an education on what a splitter is, what an amplifier, and they're helping me out. And It's all done through Twitter. And I didn't resolve it that night, but I felt better about Comcast because I had more knowledge of what the situation was, and it was just a good. It was just a good experience, and so the light bulb went off for me. Um, I mean, it's from my perspective, it's, it's common sense. You know, we've been we've been starved um, from companies. We've gotten so used to bad phone service, bad customer experience, and then all, all of a sudden, someone takes a tiny little channel like Twitter and they provide a good experience. And of course, we are going to talk about it. Of course, it's going to produce buzz because we're you know there's so much other crap out there. So that's, that's sort of the big aha moment when it comes to a lot of these networks and services and how some brands are choosing to use them is that there's a big opportunity to actually provide a better, you know, a better set of micro-interactions than what can be experienced in other places. So to simplify it, it's this idea of positive interactions which lead to trust, which leads to loyalty. That's life in a 2.0 world. And if I had to sum up the entire presentation, it would be this idea of Moving from passive to active, from macro to micro, you know, from from mass messaging and broadcasting to lots of different communications, um, conversations, interactions. Actually, the you know the active actions versus just talking about something. From fixed to portable, from recorded to live, from messages to interactions, from formal communication to informal conversation, from dictation to conversation, the idea of finite interactions to infinite every time you leave a comment, and those can go on forever. From staged to improvised, masked to fragmented, from promises to actions. Or if we really want to simplify this, it's this idea of putting people first. Whether that is using a user-centered design process or just improvising along the way, like what Twitter did you know, kind of reacting to what, oh, you want to use it this way? Okay, well, instead of fighting you on that, we'll try to help you. And we're having issues scaling? Well, we're going to try to take care of that, even though it's going to be imperfect. But it's the idea of putting that person first. Um, So to go back, you know, to the beginning of the presentation, we talked about Randy. Uh, You know, how would Disney know that one day this person would write a book, influence Thousands, millions of people, and talk about that one tiny little interaction that he had with Disney. That simple act of um, having you know the salt and pepper shaker replaced—is that design? Is that marketing? Is it a random act of kindness? Um, it's possible. It's, it's all three. You know, Disney may have had a policy in place back then, or it could have been just you know the the act of the individual who thought it was the right thing to do. But that one act rippled out, right? That one interaction ended up becoming a story that I'm telling you about, that lots of other people will read about. And that has kind of seared, been seared into the memory of at least this one person. So um, it's a lofty goal to treat everyone like an influencer, like they could one day grow up to write a book and talk about your product. But that's sort of the mindset that brands are finding themselves with, that if they can take every one of those tiny little interactions seriously, they can build their brands that way, versus just messaging and communicating and advertising. So every interaction has to count. Um, and it's kind of a daunting premise, but um, again, it's based on my perspective is that's how brands are going to be built, Google being a good example of that. Thank you. I blew through that, so we actually have, is it 10 minutes? We have uh, plenty of time for questions or if you just want to talk. Okay, so the question is um, talking about how companies or employees of companies are doing it to people, how can companies do it to their own people so, um, so uh, you know, that you can have more of that. It's a good question and it, it's a cultural question. Um, Zappos is a great example where they've got that baked into their, their organization. Their culture is, it, it's meant to be a customer service organization, and so all the products and services that go around that always go back to it. Um, bigger companies like Procter & Gamble uh, obviously have, you know, they have a lot of process and they have a lot more people to manage. I mean, I, I can't really answer that question. There's not a silver bullet there to say, well, a company should do X. Um, other than observing that the companies that have baked it into their culture whether it's from the, you know, the entrepreneur who started the company or it was something that was planned early on, they seem to, to be the ones that are better equipped. I will say, you know, Dell is an interesting example because, um, you know, where I gave the Zappos example where it is baked into their DNA, I don't know if I could say that for Dell, but what happened to Dell, all the things that Dell, have, Dell has done that they've had some success with um, have, you know, if you look at the Dell business model and you look at where their brand was going, um, they had to do something. And so, you know, I know, speaking for them personally, knowing a little bit about that organization, Michael Dell drives quite a bit of it, and he, you know, he involved himself, and so he kind of mandated certain things and empowered people. So some of those people, I think their, their staff now, their social media staff um, who go out and do these things is, is over 30 now. Um, and so that stemmed from almost a necessity to do something. They kind of took matters in their own hands, and they got the support of Michael Dell. There, there were legal issues that came up along the way. So um, I'd say either you've got it baked into your DNA, but if you don't, it helps to have someone high up who's actually going to you know have the vision and empower you to do it. Mm-hmm. But so we trying to recap what you're, what you're saying, um, that it's critical to empower those frontline employees to be able to have those interactions. And, um, So much of this, I think, you know, go back to the beginning of the presentation and Randy's observation when he's speaking to the Disney executives and how they're not really comfortable with that, um, it does come down to, you know, kind of corporate cultures that don't embrace risk or that are, uh, you know, have legal processes in place. Uh, Those have to be bypassed. So I think what you're saying is, you know, yes, we agree that, that you can be very effective, especially on the front lines, but those are the obstacles. And that's why we're seeing it with, like, you know, more often than not with smaller, more nimble companies. Or, you know, Southwest is another good example. They are a customer-focused organization. They're bigger. But they also, if you look at them culturally, from the beginning, they've always been different. So they have that as well. Um, Comcast is interesting. And so Olivia is here. So maybe we could talk to her a little bit later. Um, because they seem to have a lot of the challenges that, that, you know, I mean, you don't get too much bigger than them. And I would imagine they have all that red tape. And so, in a way, they're a bit of an anomaly. And they actually, you know, they scaled up that Twitter effort from Frank, one person, to ten people within a month. I believe that's the case. So um, that probably validates the idea, the notion of the pilot project, create a pilot project. Uh, That initiative with Twitter got them tons of positive PR, much more positive than negative. And so my guess is there was some meeting that said, okay, this is actually pretty good. We should do more of this. And so maybe that, you know, those pilot projects may be a workaround for some of the bigger organizations that have more of the red tape. Um, okay, so the question is, how do you, um, how do you scale it? Um, okay. So shouldn't you do something more on a mass scale? Oh, I, you shouldn't do one of the other. I mean, the, the ripples diagram that I had up actually illustrates it pretty well that you should do both. Um, but I would say absolutely, yeah, it's not about Twitter. Um, it is about uh, working in a medium that's very fragmented. The the Internet is extremely fragmented. It's a fragmented medium. And, you know, the proof is these companies that have done it the right way, which I think the right way is providing value and not marketing messages and providing c- customer service. That's what I think the right way is. And being transparent about it, There's lots of other ways. They've already seen the benefit. I mean, there have been write-ups in mainstream publications. There have been people like me saying, oh, yes, that was actually a good experience. So I think that validates it, that doing those fragmented things, you know, finding 10 other networks or 10 other areas that, that, you know, and playing in those spaces, not just Twitter, do work. um, That doesn't mean that you don't do the bigger scale types of things. the benefit to the smaller ones is that they are kind of nimble, and and, and you can also move on, right? You can experiment, and um, you can say, okay, you can learn from it. And my, my guess is with some of these companies that that they're doing it partially to learn um, from, you know, learn learn about the space, learn about the customers, how they actually want to use tools like this. So that there, there's ROI there as well. So I'd say you don't do one over the other. You don't do something on a larger scale that could help um, service, you know, a bigger portion of your customers, but you certainly do lots of those little things. It's hard to do the little things because um, it takes coordination, you know, you have to go through those legal loopholes to get them approved, um, but you can do them, once you get it going, you can do them uh, very fast. Do it if you're confident that you can provide value, provide a service, um, you know, not just provide lip service, and if, you know, you have to have some level of commitment, even if it is just one person. You have to commit to say, okay, we're going to let you know, going to empower this person somehow to go and do this, and 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 then have some objectives. If it is to learn something from it, you know, internally you have to have those objectives. They have to be somewhat clear, but absolutely do both, not one over the other. Um, I, I would just add to that that we're increasingly seeing more proof of. Uh, you know, we've got some folks here. I'm sure. I'm sure that that um, Jesse from Adaptive Path or Jason from Thirty Seven Singles. They've all done these things as well and have had a lot of success with them. You know, the way that they've promoted their organizations and their companies have, have, have all been this way, and it works. You know, as opposed to just always having the access to a large media organization that's going to say good things about you. So there's lots of proof out there, um, and you have to do both. One last one. Uh, right in the middle. Glasses. When the Comcast guy asks you what you're wearing, it's really late at night Um, actually I mean I'm joking but uh, to some degree uh, professionalism this is where it's going to get interesting because when you have and this is the risk and this is what everybody's really scared about so the benefits are what I said earlier oh wow here's someone who's qualified who's helping me who you know it's that I call it direct engagement it is it's it's live human interaction delivered in a very low-key design solution, right? Um, where you're hitting upon is the big risk, which is, um, it's unpredictable. You know, what if somebody does X? But, to, you know, and that you could, that risk exists over the phone, right? When you're having a phone conversation with someone from Comcast, they could go off the handle and, you know, say something inappropriate. Um, the intrusive idea specifically, I mean... Yeah, at some point, I guess there will have to be some rules of engagement you know, as things become more formalized, but hopefully it's done in such a way that it doesn't hinder that, you know, the, the quality of that interaction. It's a big issue. Your question is actually, a, you know, it's, it's probably going to be the next big issue that comes up, I think. I think that's it. Okay, thank you, everyone. Appreciate it.